John chapter 20, right at the end of that chapter, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. If you, if you know anything about the way John's Gospel is structured, um, you know that this really is his conclusion. This is, this is that final statement he's been building toward. Uh, chapter 20 is really more of an epilogue and also very valuable, but here is where John lands. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now Lord, open every ear, cause every eye to see clearly Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing to have life. Help us to see it, Lord, not just to hear the words rambling in our heads, bouncing around the air. Help us to see. Help us to believe. Help us to understand. Awaken faith in the dead hearts and rouse the sleepy. Don't let this next few moments be wasted because our minds are elsewhere, but but, but bring to our attention each one of us, those things we must see, know, understand, and above all, believe, rely on that we may have this life. It is in your name we pray. Amen. So have you ever read a book and wondered why the author took the time to write it? And then what does that have to do with you? People write books for all kinds of reasons. Some do it to entertain you, others to inform or influence you in some way. Some just want to make a name for themselves. You know, see their name in print. You know, you read those kinds of books and you wonder, what was that even about? That's a few hours of my life I'd certainly like to have back. So why does the Apostle John write this book? And what does it have to do with you? Well, rather than leave you guessing, John tells you very plainly here in verse 31, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So why does John write this book? To convince you that Jesus really is who He claims to be. Why should that matter to you? Because it is by believing this message about Jesus, indeed believing Jesus Himself, that you may receive eternal life. So let's let's look at this. And there really are two big things John wants you to understand as he brings his, his account of Jesus to a conclusion here. And the first is that Jesus did a whole lot more than John is able to tell us in this one single Gospel. Because no single writing could ever take in all that Jesus is and has done for us. Verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. I mean, Jesus' life is just too big. Its meaning is far too significant to be contained in any one writing. You ever wonder why there are four Gospels? 
Well, part of the reason simply is because one book simply couldn't contain the whole. John even says that at the end of his epilogue, John chapter 20, verse 25, the very last verse of this book, he says, Now there are also many other things Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The life of Jesus is just too big. And so God didn't just inspire one account for us, He gave us four Four, so that we might more clearly see and understand the beauty and the significance of Jesus. Oh, you ought to know Him. I remember taking a drafting class back in high school. And in that class, they taught us that if we want to portray a three-dimensional object, then we needed to have three views at least. You had to have the front view and you had to have the side view and then you had to have the top view. And then if there was even more detail inside of that object, you might even need an interior view. And so it takes four perspectives on the one truth in order for you to get the fullest picture. In a way, that's what God has done for us in providing us with four Gospels. It takes all four to give us the fuller view of Christ. Three of them very closely related. We call those the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John is sort of like that interior view, uh, giving us even more detail. That is, by the way, dear one, why I recommend reading these four Gospels regularly, that you might have the fullest possible view of Jesus. Why? Because it is in knowing Jesus that you have eternal life. And so again, John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Notice, first of all, Jesus did these things John has written us about in the presence of His disciples. Now why is that important? Well, it's important because the Gospels come to us as eyewitness accounts. This is not hearsay. These are not stories somebody made up and others passed along. The reason these men, like John, can tell us about Jesus is because they were there. They, they saw these things with their own eyes. Look at that phrase, in the presence of the disciples. That means right in front of them. Um, more literally, right in their faces. That's why it matters that Peter and John and these others, including Thomas, these apostles, personally encountered the risen Christ because they saw Him and He spoke with them physically. Uh, Peter talks about that in 2 Peter 1.16. He says, We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. When John writes his letter sometime later, he'll, he'll confirm the same thing. He says in 1 John 1, 1-3, he says, speaking of Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard with our own ears, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
this life, Jesus, was manifested among us and we have seen it and we have testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life that was with the Father and became manifest to us that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. We were eyewitnesses. And so our faith is built upon the eyewitness accounts of these men. It's built upon the first-hand accounts of those who were here. They, they saw Him and spoke to Him. And then in God's grace, they have written it all down under the inspiration of the Spirit that we too might know Christ. And so John says, Jesus did so many things I could tell you about. And we say, well, how do you know that, John? And he says, well, because I was there. I saw Him. And now I'm writing it all down so that you too can see Him through my eyes. Second, notice that John calls the things Jesus did in his Gospel signs in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Now what does John mean by signs? Well, to understand that, it goes all the way back to the very first sign that John records for us in John chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, that's where, you may remember, Jesus turned the water into wine at a wedding feast. And after telling us how Jesus turned the water into wine, in John 2, 11, John says, this is the first sign that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee to manifest His glory and His disciples believed in Him. And so what is a sign? Well, the way John uses this word, a sign means something that Jesus did, usually something miraculous that points us to who Jesus is. Because that's what a sign does, right? A, a sign points you somewhere. A sign points you to something. If you're up at the St. Louis Zoo and you see a sign that says elephants and points over this way, you don't stop and look at the sign and take pictures of the sign. right? Because the sign is not the point of being at the zoo. You look past the sign to where the sign points and you say, oh, I see elephants. Likewise, Jesus did all of these signs, all of these miraculous things, not so He'd stop and look at them and say, oh gee, isn't it neat how He changed water into wine? I wonder how He did that. Did it really have alcohol in it? If you're Baptist, you ask that question. But that's not the point of a sign. You don't stop and look at the sign. You look where the sign is pointing. And all these signs point you to Jesus so that you can see Him for who He is. And John, in his Gospel specifically, gave us seven signs pointing us to Jesus. Do you remember them if you've been here throughout this journey? First, as I said, He turned the water into wine in John 2. So that we'd look at that and we'd say, Wow, who can do that kind of thing? And we'd realize that only the Creator can do that sort of thing. And we'd see Christ as the one who creates and sustains and renews our joy. The second sign, he turned the royal he healed the royal official's son in John 4, 46 to 54. If you remember that story, he didn't even have to be present with the boy when he healed them. He just spoke the word. And at a distance, the boy was healed. And we're supposed to say. Who has that kind of authority? 
John 5, He healed the man who was lame by the pool of Bethesda. That man had been there 38 years hoping for a miracle that never came. And then Jesus showed up and with a word gave him back his legs. And we're supposed to say, who is this who can do such things? The fourth sign, he fed 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish in John 6. And when the people saw that, they said, well, surely this is the prophet who's to come into the world. And they wanted to make him king. But here's what he said, John 6.35. He said, no, no, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Who else can do that sort of thing? John 6, 16-21, Jesus walks on top of the water to reach His terrified disciples out in the middle of the sea. The very elements of the earth obey Him. And He comforts them in verse 20 saying, I am He, meaning I'm the God who made all these things. Do not be afraid. Who else could do that? Sixth, He gives sight to a man who was born blind in John 9, 1-7. I mean, who ever heard of that happening? What kind of man can do these things? Well, only one who can say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. The seventh sign, he raised the dead. His friend Lazarus in John 11. I mean, even death is no match for him. And he says in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he shall die, yet shall he live. So John, throughout his Gospel, has been giving us this evidence all along. All these signs to make us stop and think, who is this? And now he says, And I could have given you so much more. There is so much that Jesus did. I couldn't possibly write it all down. And and if He were here with us, He'd say, "But, but it's okay because I have three friends who also wrote Gospels. And you can go and look and see. They've written some stuff too. But I had a reason for writing these things. I've written these things specifically so that you might believe. And that brings us then to this next thing John wants us to understand. And that is... John's Gospel has a purpose. There is a reason that he's written it. John wrote this Gospel for this purpose to convince you, dear reader, dear listener, to believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Verse 31, But I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. By the way, did you notice how John breaks the fourth wall here? I don't know if you know that phrase, to break the fourth wall. Um, It comes from the world of theater. When you go to the theater, most theatrical sets uh, are, are built with three walls, right? So that you can see the action. So they're in a house, but there's only three walls that are physically built because you and I as the audience, we're observing everything through an imaginary fourth wall while the actors just pretend that we're not there. They pretend that they can't see us. But every once in a while, the script writer will have an actor turn and speak directly to us in the audience. And that's called breaking the fourth wall. And that's what John does here. 
We've been reading John's Gospel since chapter 1, verse 1, and we've been observers. We've not been a part of the action. But all of a sudden, John steps out of that narrative and begins to address you and me directly. He looks directly into our eyes and says, you know, I'm writing this for you. Verse 31, these things were written so that you, dear reader, dear listener, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may be saved. And all of a sudden we realize that the reason John has been written this was for us. He's writing to convince us. This has been his purpose all along. He hasn't written these things just to entertain us with a gripping story or or to give us pointers about how to have a nice life on this world. He certainly isn't writing to make a name for himself because he didn't even mention his own name in the whole thing. No, no, John has one purpose that you might believe. Believe what? Oh, you see, that's the important thing here. But Because notice... This faith John is telling us about that we must have, this faith has content. Belief must be aimed at something. You know, we live in a day when people will say, Oh, just believe. Just believe. Well, believe what? Do you you understand? Faith requires an anchor. Warren, I had no idea you were going to talk so much about an anchor. And that has been on my mind all week. Faith requires... An anchor, faith must be fixed to something that is real. By itself, just believe is utter nonsense. Because belief in and of itself is not a thing. Saving faith is not a feeling. It must be fixed upon something real. Faith by itself has no power whatsoever. Faith must borrow its power from the thing that it is fixed upon, the thing that it is plugged into. It's like that fan that you turn on at night, right? You unplug that thing, it's not doing anything. It's just sitting there. That cord has no power. The fan itself cannot move unless it's battery operated, but we won't talk about that kind. Uh, and, and so you, it must be plugged in to borrow its power from another source, that which it is tied into. Faith must be plugged into the object that actually has the power to save. And so, if I say that I believe in fairy dust, and I believe fairy dust is going to give me wings so I can fly around this room like Peter Pan, and then I climb up on this pulpit and get ready to jump off, you're all going to get your phones out, right? Not because you want to record a miracle, because you want to record the splat. Because you know that faith in imaginary fairy dust is not going to accomplish a single thing. No matter how hard I believe it. A strong faith in a weak or an imaginary thing is utterly worthless. And so for faith to be of any value, it must be anchored to something real and strong, to something that has power. John has just spent 20 chapters giving us example after example about how Christ is real and strong and has power. Uh, Beginning with these seven signs all pointing us to His deity and then of course ending with His own death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. So last week we stood there with Thomas whose mouth dropped onto his chest as he said in seeing Jesus, my Lord and my God. And then do you remember what Jesus said to him in response? 
It's back in verse 29. That's where we ended last time. He said to Thomas, Thomas, it's wonderful that you believe because you've seen me. That's good. You're an apostle. That's why I'm here. But Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen me themselves and yet have believed, meaning through your testimony. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we realize Jesus is talking about us. This is where that begins. All these signs were meant for us. John has been giving his testimony for us. So that even though we have never seen Jesus face to face, based on the strength of John's evidence and that of the other Gospel writers, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we too might enter into the same blessing of knowing Christ because the Gospel has brought Him to us. Faith must have an object. It must be anchored to something real. And Christ is that anchor. So John's goal has been to bring you to that anchor where you will see Christ for who He is and believe. Believe what? Believe Him. Second, notice then that saving faith, belief, means relying wholly on the person of Jesus. John has used this word believe about a hundred times, just, just shy of a hundred times in his gospel. And yet, unfortunately, there's a weakness in our English word believe, not in the word John uses, but our English translated word, because we don't have a better one, uh, and the weakness in this English word can actually mess people up. Because in English, believe is a pretty weak word, at least the way we use it. We use it to mean, you know, I feel something is true. I accept it as true. Well, at least true for me. It doesn't have to be true for you. I just have a feeling about it. And whether or not it actually accepts, affects my life or not, you know, that's beside the point. I accept it. I like it. I feel it. That's how we use the word. But the biblical word that John uses, pastuo, is made of much stronger stuff than that. Because it means not just to believe something up here or in here in some abstract kind of way, but it means that it is the kind of thing that you rely upon. It is the kind of thing that you live upon. Biblical faith, in other words, is not just believing with your mind or feeling in your heart, though it includes both of those, but it goes further because it is, if it is indeed true, then I can rely upon it. If it is indeed true, then I must rely upon it, and I'm going to set my whole being upon it as true. And so, if I believe the anchor will hold, I'm going to entrust my life to it and let it hold me fast in the midst of the storm. If I believe this ship will not sink, then I'm going to get into it, and I mean all the way into it, and trust that it will get me to my destination. And so biblically, faith involves both of these. Belief in the facts. I believe His Word is true. I believe Jesus has done these things, that He's risen from the dead, and that He reigns on high. I believe that as fact, but then it also includes a reliance upon Him. I entrust myself to Him as saving Lord. I entrust myself to Him and therefore I follow Him. And that brings us to this next thing then. So what specifically is it we must believe about Christ to receive this promised life? Notice John tells us two things. Specifically, he says, first, we must believe that Jesus is the Christ. 
Verse 31, these things are written so that you, speaking to you, may believe what? That Jesus is the Christ. Plain enough, right? What's it mean? Well, remember that Christ, that's not His name. It's a declaration of who He is. It's more of a title like King or Savior. And it it corresponds to the Hebrew Messiah. That's why it often comes with the word the in front of it. Like when Peter confesses him in Matthew 16, 16. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ means the anointed one, the Messiah promised by God and waited through throughout the Old Testament. I mean, think of all those promises that form the backbone of the Old Testament story. And next time you read through the Old Testament, which I hope you're doing, look for them. Look how these promises begin to stack up. All the way back to Genesis 3 when mankind fell into sin and God immediately promises the seed of the woman who will come and crush Satan's head. And we get to Abraham and he promises a descendant who will restore God's blessing to all the families of this earth broken by sin. We come to David and his kingdom and God promises him an heir who will reign forever, a king who will rule an eternal kingdom. We pass through Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and the prophets, and he he promises a servant who will suffer, a priest who will restore the fallen, a prophet who will bring us God's final word, and a king born in obscurity to reign forever. All these promises come together in the fulfillment of one man whom the Bible reveals to be Jesus Christ the Lord. Second uh, Corinthians one chapter chap, that is so easy for me to say. Second Corinthians one verse twenty says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And so when we call Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, we are affirming that He is the answer to all the promises of God throughout all of history. And John and these other gospel writers are laboring to help us see that. I mean, how many times uh, does John say something like, this was to fulfill what was written in the prophets? And the other three Gospel writers do the same, especially Matthew. He loves to say that. And so, Jesus is not some spiritual avatar who came to earth out of nowhere to teach us life lessons. He is the one God promised to take away our sins to live the life of righteousness that we have failed to live, to to die on the cross bearing the penalty of our sin and to rise triumphantly over the grave to give us life. All of this in fulfillment to the promises of God listed throughout the Old Testament era. That's what we must believe to be saved. That is what we rely upon. God has kept His Word. God has kept His promise. He has sent the One. He promised to send. He's done the things He said He would do. And we have life by trusting Him as the Christ. And then... He says we must also believe, trust, these mean the same, we must believe that He is the Son of God. Again, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe, what John, what must I believe? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Not only is He the long-awaited Messiah, but He is God the Son made flesh. 
God the Son, second person of the Trinity, who has existed forever in the loving arms of the Father, took on flesh in time and space and dwelt among us. God didn't just send us a messenger this time. God Himself came as the message. That's why John begins as he does in that first chapter that we read so long ago. John 1 verses 1 to 18. And by the way, I never tire of reading that passage. Listen to at least part of it. Again, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Christ, to later identify Him as Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. There's a good word. Verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people, the Jews, did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born not of blood or the will of uh, the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, No one has seen God, but the only God, that is Christ, who is at the Father's side, He has come and made Him known. This is who Jesus is. This is what qualifies Him to be our Savior. He is God made man. God with power to save and forgive, but man who can take our place and bear the penalty of our sin. And there is no one like Him. There is no one who can do the things He did. There is no one who can bring us to the Father, which is why He said in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth And the life, you're looking for a way, you're looking for the truth, you're looking for life, it's me, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And I need to hear that. And you need to hear that. You know, on my really bad days, I can doubt a whole lot of things. I can, especially about myself. You ever doubt yourself? I doubt myself all the time. And I can struggle with aspects of my faith as they're challenged in this toxic culture. Can you? Do you ever struggle? And I don't, I don't want to think that I could ever walk away or deconstruct my faith as, as some have done. But sometimes I wouldn't put it past me because I can be a pretty slippery fellow. But there is an anchor that holds even on the worst of days. And that anchor is when I look and I see Jesus for who He is. See, I can doubt a whole lot of things, but I can never seem to doubt Him. I just can't get around Him. And it's on those days of struggle that I go back to Him. What about this? I don't know. Look at Jesus. What what about this? Well, I don't know. Look at Him. If we can get rid of Him, then maybe it will all fall apart, but I just can't ever seem to get rid of Him because every time I look at Him, and every time I see Him, the Son of God, God the Son, who loves me and gave Himself for me, suddenly my faith revives. Because He is the anchor that holds. 
dear one, you're struggling with stuff. There's lots of stuff to struggle about. It's being thrown at you from a thousand directions. Here's my advice. Go back to Jesus. Deal with Jesus. See if you can get around Jesus. And, and if you're honest with the truth, and if, if, he, if, if you see Him for who He is, you can't get around Him. And so, okay, then let's go put these other stuff back together. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And you see, that's what faith does. That's what John is telling us here. Faith opens your eyes to see Jesus for who He is, the Son of God, your sovereign Savior. And so faith has an object. It's Jesus. It has an assurance that He is the Messiah, God's Son, our Savior. And then notice, faith has a purpose. John tells us right at the end of verse 31, he says, I've written these things to you who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Why, John? Why have you written them? So that by believing, you may have life in His name. Faith has a purpose that you may have life. And notice, this life has a name. This life has a name. How do we receive this life? John says, by believing. By believing what? Christ. (laughs) The Reformers talked about faith as the instrument of our salvation. Because again, faith does not save us. Remember, Uh, faith in and of itself is not a thing. Faith in and of itself doesn't have a power. Faith is not a thing that can save. But faith, as Calvin said, is the empty hand that opens to receive Christ in all of His glory and power for salvation. See, Christ Himself is this life. And so again, you get caught in this silly little trap the devil lays. I've got to work up faith. I've got to work up a feeling. I've got to figure it out. I've got got to come up. No! Open that empty place in your heart and say, Jesus, come! Come! I'm looking to You. I'm weak, but You're strong. I'm empty, but You're full. It's You. So where is faith found? What does John tell us? In His name. Right? If you want eternal life, it comes by going to Him. How do you receive this life? By opening the hand of faith to receive Christ as He's revealed in the Gospel. Listen, dear one, that's all you do. (laughs) You take hold of Him. There's, There's no good works for you to add. There's no having to prove yourself before God by something you did. There's no mountain to climb. There's no river to swim. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross of Christ. I cling. If you want eternal life, It becomes yours by taking hold of Christ because Christ is the life. And again, that's why I say life has a name. It is by believing Christ, trusting Christ, that you gain life. And again, where does John say that life is found? It says in His name. That means in His person. That means in Christ Himself. And so again, I've probably said this, but let me just say it again. Let me let it ring in your ears. Eternal life is not just a thing Jesus gives. It is who Jesus is. John 1.4 says, In Him, that is in Christ, is life. 
John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the life. Colossians 3.4, Christ is your life. And so the Gospel doesn't send you to Christ to get something called life from Him. The Gospel sends you to Christ as the life you need. That is the critical truth here. And that's why coming to Christ is not a matter of morality or religion or trying to use Him to get something else, other stuff. It is a matter of coming to Him and seeing in Him all that you need and resting on Him for what only He can do. He alone can save from what? From yourself. (laughs) He alone can cleanse you from your sin. He alone can give you life forever. And that's what this Gospel was written to let you see. If you're struggling with that, you're doubting that, you're unsure of that, go home and think about it. Read these verses. Go back through John's Gospel. See who Jesus is. I read an article this weekend. I think about this as I'm headed, I'm flying... Um, to Romania through Turkey this time. I've never gone that way before. It was just interesting looking at the you know Turkish air. Oh, they assure me all my meals will be halal, you know. So I guess that's good news. Um, but I was reading this article in, in World Magazine about how in the last two decades there have probably been more Muslims come to faith in Christ than the previous uh, two thousand years. Oh, not two thousand. Muslims haven't been around that long. The previous since six hundred when Muhammad did his thing. You know, what's that? Fifteen hundred years almost. And one of the big things that God is using is the Gospel of John. You get a Muslim friend, he says, what about this Jesus? I want to learn about him. You know, Issa bin Miriam, who, who is he? Well, first of all, you ought to have a Muslim friend, by the way. Uh, most Muslims come to... F- I'm, going off, I'm going off script here, but I think it's important. Most Muslims come to Christ because someone who knew Jesus befriended them, cared about them, and just o- talked openly with them. And especially when they come to America, they're like, who is this Jesus these people are supposed to worship? Is he the one that is behind all the pornographers and all the junk like the imam told me? Or, or is he something else? Is he real? My Quran tells me about him, calls him Issa. But, but what about him? What's the, what's the Christian gospel say? The gospel of John presents him in this beautiful way. Same way you need to see Christ. The same way he needs to see him. And God opens those eyes. This gospel was written to let you see. John had simply one goal for you or a Muslim friend or whoever, that you would see Jesus for who he is, that you would believe him for what he has done, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And you know, if the plane goes down on the way to Turkey next week, this week, if I die and don't get to come back and see you face to face, this is what I want ringing in your ear. You know, the last thing Pastor Scott ever said is, there is a Christ, the Son of God, revealed in Scripture, and by believing in His name, I may have life eternal. That you would see Christ for who He is. That you would believe in Him for what only He has done and can do. And that you would have this life that leads you to follow and walk with Him from now into eternity. And that's my prayer for you. Father, I'm so grateful for your word and for this gospel of John that opens up to us not some stories to keep us entertained. The world's full of that nonsense. But the truth to bring us home. It shows us Jesus 
for who He really is. The One promised by You for our salvation. The Son of God who loved us and came to lay down His life in our place. Father, would You give open eyes of faith to every unbeliever here that they would become believers and followers of Jesus. Would you give open eyes to every struggling Christian here who's been battered and beaten by the, by the, by the, by the junk of this world and they're, they're doubting, they're straying, Lord, they're thinking about walking away. Would you stand Jesus directly in front of them and let them see they can't get around Him? That, that if they're going to throw away this faith, they've got to throw away Him. And once they've seen Him for who He is, they know that's the one thing they can never do. Would you, Jesus, become real to each individual here? Would you let them see who you are, trust what you've done, and have this life that never ends? For the sake of Christ we pray. Amen.